Hello and welcome to the Wonder and Wonder podcast, where we wander around the world wondering about wonder, and then we wander a bit more and make a podcast about it. I'm your host, Anna Lara, writer and editor of That Wonder Chick. If you haven't heard this podcast before, welcome. The main goal of this show is to share experiences and analysis of different roles we as travelers occupy in the tourism and travel industry. Every episode, I invite an expert, a traveler, a tourist, or a wanderer to discuss different issues. In our last episode, my guest Almika and I delved into the discussion about heritage and UNESCO sites and properties and their commodification for the tourism industry. Today's episode is the last part of our interview with Almikar. UNESCO listing is not a branding for tourism attraction, even if it comes in hand in hand with the massive tourism overcrowding. As Almikar shared, the UNESCO listing involves quality. And as the sites depend on tourism revenue for its conservation and management, that quality often comes in two ways. The quality of the conservation and management and the quality of the tourism or visitor experience. Both depend on each other. So I decided to surf the web to check out some of the reviews and commentary of which sites are the best visitor experience. However, most of the travel-related media normally lacks the visitor aspect. The travel media either writes about specific audiences, for example, the best sites to visit with children, the best UNESCO natural parks, the top 10 UNESCO sites you have never heard of, and stuff like that. But after scrolling through the reviews of each site and engine, because I also try to look out for TripAdvisor and Booking.com, I realized that focusing on tourism experience or visitor experience might be a really tough one to grab on. Then I wondered, from the sites that I visit myself, Which one has been a truly delightful experience? For me, the best experience are always connected to the way you're guided through the site. I'm not saying that you require a guide to enjoy the sites. What I mean is that the narrative that engages the audience with the site is what, at least for me, gives the value to the visit. When I visited Angkor Wat, I had no real narrative of how to explore the site. Even though it's magnificent, it wasn't until I got to Vietnam that I finally understood Angkor Wat's site. Or for example, if I hadn't studied core units in archaeology, I wouldn't have enjoyed the same way all the difference in all the pyramids and cultures in Mesoamerica. In Petra, it was our guide that gave us a comprehensive history of the site for us to then explore it and connect to it in our own ways. And in Ghent, it was a comical narrative audio guide that made my visit an absolute delight. And believe me, an audio guide is not my best sort of recommendation. Every one of us has a different way to experience and enjoy these sites. But what about the locals? How do they enjoy these places? On today's episode, Almikar shares with us his research in Mexico. He tells us about the discrepancies of the state-owned and managed guidelines for indigenous people to use the sites for ceremonial traditions. This then adds another dimension in, into our UNESCO sites topic. Who has access and freedom to use these sites that are still important sites for celebration of traditional cultures? Join us in the last part of the interview with Almikar, where I ask him about the role of the UNESCO in involving local communities. So, yeah, it's interesting. I, I get this, this, this cycle. I feel like there's this cycle between, you know, what, what came first, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the importance of heritage or the tourism attraction because they just I feel like lately it's just comes together 
and mm -hmm. I guess also there's a lot of, of, of tourism branding, like you said before, it's not about the brand, it's not about quality, but I, I imagine a lot of places think that the UNESCO denomination might be more of a quality branding rather than, you know, the importance of preservation of cultural heritage. Uh, yeah, but in, in of, of course, it's when, when, when you are a World Heritage property, there is the, expect, the expectation of to see something outstanding, something unique in the world, something that is, uh, that deserves to be preserved for the rest of the generations. But also you, as a site manager, you have the responsibility to, um, to demonstrate that you deserve to have that inscription. Mm -hmm. and, it's, it, and it's not just only uh, an obligation, a, um, a written obligation that you have to accomplish all the uh, guidelines coming from UNESCO. That is a, a compromise that those that are not in the World Heritage list, they don't have to follow. Um, but once you, have, uh, you are in the list, you have the obligation to, to, to fulfill all these, um, these um, requirements. Yes, these requirements, thank you. Yeah. Uh, but also you have to give a high quality service. Just imagine it's probably not the best compar comparative, but this very uh, can, can give people light about the understanding. When you are um, granted by uh, with a um, uh, Michelin uh, star as a restaurant, mm -hmm. yeah, you can feel very proud of being in this very exclusive list. But when the people, they go to the restaurant, they are, they are expecting to have something uh, on return. Extraordinary. Extraordinary, outstanding, unforgettable. Expensive yes. sometimes, most of the times, but uh, but completely worthy. But yeah. if you don't achieve that goal, you can be delisted from the uh, Michelin list, of course. Mm -hmm. So it's a compromise. It's something that uh, gives you a value, but you have to demonstrate that you deserve to have it. Yeah. And, um, and when you are in the World Heritage List, you have the opportunity to, to explain the, the universal values, the outstanding universal values that your property has. And depending on the, on the site, you have uh, uh, 100,000 or 1 million opportunities or 10 million opportunities each year to communicate these values to the people. Most of them, they are not local people, that's for sure. People living next to Chichen Itza are just less than 10,000 or 5,000 is very a tiny population, local population in Chichen Itza compared with the hundreds of thousands of people that visit every year. But you, yeah. you have, this, you have this, this opportunity and we don't have to lose that perspective. And we, we should have this in mind every day when we receive the visitors of what are we offering to these people? Are we really communicating this or, uh, or are, are these values or are we really inspiring these people uh, that visit this, this incredible site? So this is something that all the sites managers should think about. It's not just about um, just having the brand, having this star in, in the showcase and, and, and that's it. No, you have to really demonstrate that you deserve it and that you are uh, protecting the values of the site for the next generations. Yes, of course. I think, I think that's a very important thing to mention. I think there's also this ethical, um, I guess, ethical promise or compromise of actually giving that quality to visitors while maintaining a site that it involves so many different things, like you said, conservation and uh, narrative and experience, but also managing as well how it will impact the community that is 
you know, in in the site as well. And, uh, yeah, yeah and it's a massive task. <laughs> yes, and I think the opportunity that we are facing now, it's also uh, one of, for the, for, for, I think for the whole world, not just Casaba Job, but what happened after, what will happen after the lockdown is that only, we will only have local people as a public. So yes. in, in Casaba Job, we are preparing since a couple of months ago, since the first, actually since the first day of the lockdown, we were preparing uh, the new activities for the local people. These local people that in many of the museums and properties of and heritage properties in Barcelona, the local people were the tiniest part of the public. Uh, mm -hmm. Less than 10% of the visitors were local visitors. And this is a global phenomenon. The less than 10% of people visiting the Eiffel Tower or the Louvre Museum, or the, the local people were the, the tiniest part of the of the visitors. So um, we were we, we knew that in, in advance. So we expected that in advance. So that's why now we have the very big opportunity to, to change our narrative, to adapt to these new changes. And because of this diversity of properties of Antonin Gaudí, each of us is acting in a different way. We more or less know what is doing each other, but we base it on, on our individual values and or our individual capacity and resources, we are planning several actions to, to come back to after this um, lockdown. And we will be addressing 100% local visitors. Yes, exactly. So, Something that we didn't have uh, the time or resources to to deal in the past, or that even if we have, because in Casa Bajo we had a, a a special prize for local people. We have local people; they had uh, um, several priorities. But because of this crowdiness, many local people they were they were really avoided. avoided. Yes, they yeah. didn't want to go there because there were too many people. Um, yeah, so. Uh, it only happened to all the uh, Gaudi properties, uh, more or less the same. So local people, they avoided those places because they were crowded. Now these places were not, will not be crowded at all. And, and, and only local people will be uh, here in the city for visiting these, these houses and these buildings for several months, not yes. just a couple of days. Yes, yes, that's exactly what, what... It's funny that you mentioned that because in the previous episodes, it's been sort of the the general feeling is that as soon as this world situation that we're all facing all over the world, it's going to be travel local and visit the local museums and go to the local areas. And so I think it's very important what you mentioned. And I'm eager to see what happens in other countries because I think Obviously, as you said before, it depends on the country's management um, procedures, but it also depends on how the society interacts with sites as well. So I'm eager to see what will happen with developing countries, for example, if, mm -hmm. if it will be an, another challenge for, for developing countries. And us coming from, from, from Mexico, I think we're very used to that as well, of um, seeing mm -hmm. how how it's not easy, even though Mexico has a massive ministry of, of, of anthropology and history, which basically has mm -hmm. really thorough regulations on how 
it it manages the sites and 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 the archaeological sites and culture itself. So yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, those those countries that has this um, the centralized uh, management, centralized heritage uh, administration. Uh, also, they they since they were public, so they have been public since the since their creation. They have uh, they have had several policies for promoting the visits from local people with the special prices, the free access on Sundays. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that, um, yeah, but yeah, they're, they're, since probably coming back to the beginning of our conversation, the, those institutions are more keen on preserving the tangible thing, the history of the uh, archaeological sites as a museums, as an open air museums that expresses the, the 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 development of the previous civilizations and cultures in the country. Um, but uh, until now, they have not been uh, engaging the new expressions, the new willingness, and the, the new understandings of heritage of local mm-hmm. people. Which but which yeah, bring we'll us? See. Sorry. We'll see. We'll see what 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 they propose. Yes, exactly. Which brings us back what, what to that 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 thing that you were saying in in Tenochtitlan, eh, no, in Teotihuacan, no, the the yeah. that eh, well, if you if you just want to share that anecdote, that would be amazing. Yeah, I found on my research that um, in the archaeological site of Teotihuacan, which is the largest site open to the public in Mexico, the most visited one, very close to Mexico City, and the this site has half have the restriction for entering with guitars, musical instruments, flowers, um, because it is forbidden to, to do ceremonies. And so, so that's this kind of restriction, mm-hmm. I, ha- I haven't seen them in, in any other archaeological sites in, the, yeah. in, in Mexico. And it's very interesting because uh, all the archaeological sites in Mexico are managed by the same institution and they should apply theoretically, the same policies in the whole country. And in, for instance, in archaeological sites as El Tajin, which is in the state of Veracruz, very close, very close to the coast of the Gulf of Mexico, there are the indigenous people, they have the right uh, to use to, to, to use the archaeological site for doing ceremonies. Uh, and not just out, uh, not just outside the, the official hours for opening, because there are some of the ceremonies they have have to be done during the whole night until the until the sunrise and the starting in the sunset. At that time, all the archaeological sites in the country closed historically. But in that in those case, in that case in El Tajin, uh, the indigenous people, the Totonaco Totonaco people, they have the right uh, to use that site for ceremonies. And in my research, in the same uh, in the same year that I did my field work in Teotihuacan, I visited El Tajin, and I, I witnessed. Uh, several uh, offerings at the bottom of the of the bottom of the pyramids uh, mm-hmm. that they were offered by someone uh, someone during the night, and you in the morning you see the offering, and the security people there, they don't they don't remove them they don't they don't just clean and uh, we can quote this they 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 don't clean this uh, this offering they don't remove that flower those flowers coffee seeds. And tobacco uh, sheets and uh, to, to, tobacco leaves and those offerings they are allowed there 
But in yeah. Teotihuacan, they are strictly forbidden, and there is a huge cartel in the at the at the five entrance of the archaeological sites of the archaeological site in Teotihuacan in English and Spanish. That's just strange. a warning and rest, um, uh, avoid. Um, yes, just for this avoidance. So realistic, some of the times. It's it's very intriguing. I I, I think I'm gonna <laughs> allow myself the quest to, to to investigate why is that. Maybe they had some sort of I don't know misuse of the site or something that made them do those 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 you know those those mm -hmm. notes. Uh, but yeah, yeah. It, it is interesting when you mention that, especially in Tajin, because I've seen in other places in around the world that are obviously UNESCO like. For example, um, Angkor Wat in Cambodia, mm -hmm. you see the ceremonies go ongoing every day. Like it's yeah. part of it's part of the visit almost. I mean, you're not be you're not in the ceremony because obviously you should respect people doing their own ceremonies. But you you see mm -hmm. them performing the ceremonies and the and the music and mm -hmm. all the offerings and they even especially in in Buddhist countries they invite you to to do offerings as well because well you know the, the more the better the more the merrier yeah, yeah. and also in Petra what I saw is people were still living in the caves in Petra and that mm. didn't you know th that didn't stop the tourism that didn't I mean they, they, they kept it very clean obviously and and I guess tourism don't really wander a lot into the areas where the people live uh, but you can still see that and And that's a very important thing that you're saying is also allowing that continuity of, of using the space as a social and spiritual area. Mm -hmm. no? and, in, and, UNESCO goal, and UNESCO policies and UNESCO guidelines, they have acknowledged this and they have promoted this. Since the 90s, UNESCO, they established a policy that promoted the in participation of local people in the decision making of yeah. World Heritage. Uh, that, It was not the case at the beginning of the World Heritage Convention. It was until 1992 or 94 that in the in the operational guidelines, it was explicitly recommended that the state parties should to promote the engagement and participation of local people and youth for uh, decision making. Mm -hmm. And it had it has been like like that since the 90s and more and more. Uh, UNESCO recalls and remember the state parties that they should engage local people, they should engage youth, and they should to include uh, um, in the educational system um, elements contributing to the UNESCO goals, to the uh, heritage preservation, etc. Yeah, yeah. Well, Amilgar, it has been amazing. All, all, all the things that you said and share, like, like. No, thank like, you. Like I said before, I think heritage is one of my most important, passionate topics, and I and I think we can keep talking, <laughs> but I think yeah. we're gonna have to wrap up. Uh, but thank you so much for your time and for allowing us to understand a bit more how UNESCO World Heritage sites work and how what's your experience being, you know, the manager of Casabatlo in that sense of of conservation of the UNESCO uh, requirements. Mm -hmm. So, so thank you so much for for your time. Well, thanks to you, Anna, for 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 us in in Casa Bajo, all the management team. We are very keen on this preservation of the of this outstanding uh, work of Antonio Gaudí. Um, we since the since the current management team, like in the 80s, the the owners of the house, that they are also part of the management of the house, and they are. They are completely um, 
committed to the preservation of the house. And that's why they created this World Heritage uh, Department, area of mm -hmm. knowledge, as we call it. And uh, yeah, I think we are in a milestone moment of the house because it's a, also a milestone moment for heritage itself in the whole world. And we are expecting to, to adapt to these changes, to these challenges, and also to continue with our, uh, yeah, with, with the preservation of, of, of this property. Casabadio, as all of the cultural properties in, in Spain, they survive wars, plagues, um, uh, social disturbing, and several circumstances. Yeah. That I think that this current situation is another moment in history of these properties. And I hope that we will be um, at the level of this historical situation to adapt to these new changes, just using or inspired by uh, the genius of Antoni Gaudí that they transform just elements, stone, glass, um, wood, materials in a, in, a, in a masterpiece of art, a masterpiece mm -hmm. of architecture. I think it's an, an inspiration for us, honestly. Yes, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Amilcar. And thank you. And I hope you're, you're doing well and safe at home. Yeah, you too. Amilcar Vargas is a PhD candidate at Universidad de Barcelona. Since 2012, he has lived in Barcelona and worked in the world heritage fields, such as a consultant, researcher, and an intern in UNESCO headquarters in Paris. His PhD research is on social participation in world heritage sites, focusing on archaeological sites in Mexico. He's a member of international organizations about museums, heritage, and archaeology, such as the International Council of Museums, the European Association of Archaeologists, the Group of Heritage and Public Archaeology, and the World Archaeological Congress. Since 2018, he has been responsible for World Heritage in Casa Batlo, a house built by architect Antoni Gaudí in 1906 in Barcelona. You can contact Almicar on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you can also learn more about him and other guests at our website www.thatwonderchick.com. Thank you so much, Almicar, for sharing this time with me. As you might be already aware of, Heritage is one of my favorite topics to discuss regarding tourism and travel. One interesting question that arises this year is how the sites are going to cope with pandemic times. As we've seen around the world, lives are adapting into a new normal, whatever that means, of how people should behave in public spaces. So I wonder, what would be the strategy in these sites to develop an amazing quality experience for their visitors, especially in sites where management is not a strong feature? Locals sum the teeniest part of audiences all over the world. You see it in stats of the Louvre Museum, of the Gaudi houses, and so on. So now these sites are asking themselves how are they going to take care of their domestic tourism? As we have discussed in previous episodes, it might be that our next travels will most likely be in our local region rather than traveling overseas. Thank you so much for tuning in today. As the season is coming to an end, make sure that you're following that wonder chick on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, where I share different content and news of upcoming projects. And believe me, there's one that I'm super eager to share with you very soon. Thanks to all the supporters who have helped me to get a bit more professional. Soon I'll be sounding way better, I hope. Thanks to my supporters, and in particular to Jack, Lily, and Paul for contributing for a new mic.
If you like the podcast, you can also support it by buying me a coffee. The link is on our website, thatwonderchick.com. There, you will also find more content, such as little parts of interviews with locals on my travels and research. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.